What up? Not much, man. Uh, it's been a busy week. Yes. It's been a busy week. I'm ready for the weekend. Um, and, uh, you know, things are just things are just trucking along. You got any gripes this week? What's what's going on in your world? It's it's midterm season. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know, midterm season is yes. that period of time where students all of a sudden frantically turn in a ton of work that they've been probably laid on or that they've you know been dragging their feet on. There's a bunch mm-hmm. of stuff too. Mm-hmm. There's exams. There's, you know, I don't know. It's, it's a stressful time for both them and us, you know yes. I mean? They, they, and, and, and they want results like in 48 hours. I'm like, I have a hundred, right. I'm like, there's 150 of you. I, I can't, you know, sorry. I, it'll get there. We're going right. to get there. Everybody, everybody calm down. I'll have your midterm grades in on time with your updated, you know, major grade weight thing going on. Uh, well, we are lonely PhDs. I'm Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. He's Dr. Joseph Watson. Uh, hey. Other than griping about the uh, conditions of academia, yeah. uh, we like to we like to uh, talk about films because that's kind of what we do. Uh, we watched a couple films this week. Uh, I watched uh, Nightmare Alley from 1947, directed by Ooh. Edmund Goulding. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Dr. Watson uh, watched Tucker, The Man in His Dream, directed by Francis Fuckhead. I mean, Francis Ford Coppola. Oh, did you do that on purpose? Yeah, I did. Oh, man. All right, let me, let me, let me, I'm going to air my, grieve- let me air my grievance before we get into it. I'd like to remind our listening audience that one time francis ford coppola was the uh what do you call him the like the the chair emeritus of like the con film festival or whatever they're like the guy who curates or whatever so his one year after you know uh such a great film like the rainmaker um you know this was the year that uh cronenberg brought crash to con and Coppola went out of his way to have it moved out of screening and out of competition. So you know what? Fuck him. Like, I, I just I had no idea. I'm just like, really? Really? I, is there a beef between them? I, I know Coppola doesn't like. I think Coppola is just a small person Pronifer. in general. Like, I think he he's just very egocentric and, mm. you know, believes, mm. you know, he's of that group don't stink is that what it is? it's like his shit don't stink is that of is... that new hollywood group i mean who has lost more than francis ford coppola who constantly oh believes his idea is the fucking end-all be-all idea of film <laughs> oh. he even tanked a studio like wow. it's just like you know what i mean i'm just like i i'm sorry we're, we're, i'm digressing too much but no i, I don't I just, think so i mean it's it's connected well you know i mean he just constantly He's just like a little gnat. Just he's just like, well, they had that. If I had this, if I had this, you know, I'm just like, well, you have had that. You know what? You blew it. The Cotton Club, you blew it. All right, Tucker, you blew it. Oh, just like, sorry, I'm doing a little forecasting, but it's just like I get his he how he has somehow became because he was it's attached to Hollywood. It's the Godfather. It's the Godfather. It's That's... the Godfather and somehow Apocalypse Now, which I'll never figure out. But, no, no, it, no. You, you know, I'm just like, oh, God. Anyway, all right, so let's get into the episode. Uh, I'm going to lead off after all that big Coppola rush. I'm going to let that marinate for a few minutes. Now they got to wait. Yeah, now they got to wait. Man. Now you got to wait. Actually, no. They got no, you... to Dr. Hayes talk and then, you know. No, no, no. You know we'll what? No, you're, you're right. You're right. You lead. You lead. I, I, I'd let I off know. with my beef. I don't well I'm I'm still like really uh sort of surprised. I don't think I ever knew that you had this much emotional disdain for uh for Francis. Uh that that's really surprising to me, you know, because I well I don't value all of his work. I think he's done some really fantastic films um and you know I I think the ones that I like though are not the ones that people, you know, like Apocalypse Now is not yeah, it's not in my wheelhouse, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. The Godfather was okay. Godfather Two was even better. Um, I even like Godfather Three. Um, you know, I, I've got other films of it. I love Gardens of Stone. I love Peggy Sue Got Married. 
I love Tucker. I love the Rainmaker. Um, I, 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 I love these movies. Um, so I even like lots of the Cotton Club. I like One from the Heart. Uh, I, I've been a Francis fan, so I don't know if this is going to ruin our relationship or not. I can see the look on your face. You're like so sad that I like these movies, but this is the reality of our I, bromance. All right. I, this is right. You know, yeah. let's we've been together for 30 years. Long time. Long we, time. We're, we, you know, we're, it's not always, you know, we, it's not all wine and roses people. Well, we're not always holding hands and getting along. Right. I mean, it's, it's sometimes it's, it's, you know, sometimes we have squabbles in the kitchen, you know, it's like, we do, we do, you know, and I just look at you. I'm like, you dirty bitch. Um, <laughs> well, and you'd be accurate, but I'm just saying that like, I, 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 I think that there is an element uh, to Francis's work that has um a warmth to it. I like the fact that he brings everybody together on a crew and it's very much a family kind of ordeal. I know that he has had, um, uh, you know, a contested history, shall we say, in cinema, right? He has never been a big studio guy. I think he's always wanted to do his own studio thing, right? For better. Even though, even though his output is nothing basically but big studio work. Well, you know, I think he has this, I think he wants to be a studio system within itself. I think that that era of filmmakers, you know, there there were some that just wanted to really rebel against the Hollywood structure and and inadvertently, and I would throw George Lucas in this camp too. I mean, this- Spielberg as well. Right. They, They inadvertently- created the system again they just reinvented it you know right, but to be the man you gotta all against it yeah right yeah. to be the man you gotta beat the man and in right. this case in hollywood it's money so right. you know you create empires and you know let's just like you know when, when you, that's why coppola always is so to me poor he's just a poor mouth you know just all the time well if it had gone this way or you know, i'm just like you've had creative control over your project you you've had all of these things, but yet for some reason it's not his fault, right? It's never his fault that that it doesn't land for whatever reason, right? And I'm just like, nah, don't buy it. I don't buy it. The audience just doesn't get it, right? I mean, that's right, the- right. We're dumb, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, no, I I I I think that there are certainly moments in uh, in his career where I would agree with you, where I'd be like, no, sorry. A movie like Jack, you know, uh, mm. with Rob Williams, you know, uh, that's, it didn't land. Right. Uh, and, and there, there are others that we could point out, right. That, mm. that uh, were, were major swings and misses. Um, how do you feel about Tucker? Because have you seen, you've seen this, right? I have seen Tucker. Yes. I, let me, let me, be t- I, and I watch his films, not out of some masochistic need, uh, uh, to fuel my hatred, I uh, I come in and objectively watch. I mean, I and I have his whole like my whole life. You know, when I, I believe when you, one, I believe you. I believe yeah, you. when a new one comes out, I go, okay, I'm gonna watch this. You know, and I watch it, and I you know get twixed. That's what that's what I get. Um, <laughs> although although I shouldn't. That is one of Val Kilmer's last performances before his his surgery. So I mean, you know, that's. I, I I have I have mass love for Val Kilmer, so I just yeah. I can't I can't get on that too much. But yeah, um, no, I you know Tucker, uh, yeah, I, I I've seen actually I've seen Tucker twice. Um, I saw it when it first came out, and then I saw it years later during my Memphis era when okay. when we were all trading videos. Yeah, yeah, it's probably one that I tossed out in the club and said everybody's got to watch this tonight. Yeah, um, so. <laughs> So yeah, right. it was definitely it was definitely a Black Lodge pick. I'll tell you. Oh, that was, awesome. yeah. Yes, yes. Um, how many? So I'll, I'll ask you this: How many movies do you think a director gets before we say no more, or before we say I'm coming into this with reservations, right? Because I know you say that you come into it with an open mind, and mm-hmm. I I try to do that as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really do. Like, okay. This is not reflective of this director's previous work. This is a fresh take. So let's let's give it, you know, let's give it its just due, right? Mm-hmm. But inevitably we know that director styles and themes and motifs and all these mm-hmm. recurring patterns come back, right? And so, you know, there's going to be twinges of it. How many do they get 
before it starts to taint that objectivity where we can't go into it with an open mind? Or is that is that even, you know, possible? Well, this this sounds like a, a borderline Polanski argument, um, you know, because frantic's on the film list it's on our class film list and i'm just yeah. like it's a great film it is a great it, film it's a great film with harrison ford giving a top-notch performance so right. i mean it's just like this is you know you're you're your devil's advocating me and i, I love it um you know it, it's it's about I, I tell you what okay i'll throw this one out there like terry gilliam terry gilliam is a director of diminish i, I say director of diminishing returns um, I got Fair. done watching uh, uh, his Don, his long, 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 long gestating Don Quixote picture. You know, he was just like, I've been, I saw the doc, you know, it's well documented, the struggle. Just like, eh, okay. You, you, you know, I'm just like, and, and I saw Zero Theorem and, you know, all of these things I follow as career coach. It's just like, it's been, I got to be honest with you, man, since Munchausen, it's been diminishing returns. Like, I, I and yeah, Munchausen is before the Fisher King. And I love some Fisher King, but you know, again, if I'm going on that sliding scale of things, you can see the trouble that's churning in the water. And I'm just like, mm, okay. <laughs> so uh I guess I guess we're we're gonna leave it at it's it varies per sure. context. Yeah. Uh you know, I'm tr- just trying to think of the most recent one is Ben Wheatley, right? Where mm-hmm. I've been like you okay. did you I, I saw it too and I did not like it. I, you know, I, I was with you in it in the yeah, field. It's a yeah. piece of crap. Like it's just um, like, what is this self-indulgent thing? <laughs> yeah. So I so I got, you know, and and again, I you know, I, I come back to the to the nobody sets out to make a bad movie. I get it, but like right. at the end of the day, the you know, you have to look at the finished work as you know, as the the product that we look at, you know, it is mm-hmm. the outcome. And so we have to judge it based on its on its merits, regardless of, of, of how we feel about anybody who was creatively behind the, uh, the genesis of, of such projects. So yeah, that's, that's, I'm just really surprised. So, but I'm, 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 you know, I'm happy to know that because I think Mm -hmm. it's, it's going to help in the little small discussion of some things that have, it's like, why do I want to watch Tucker again, right? I mean, this one just kind of came out of popped into my head. I usually try to go yeah, with the you, first you thing that popped me. in my head. Yeah. Um, and and I promise to my listening audience that I can get out of the 80s at some point. I promise <laughs> I can. Um, but uh, but there's still so much to mine in the yeah. 80s, you know, that we that we still, you know, even in a larger research context, we haven't really unearthed we have, well, we haven't even gotten into the indie film movement of the 80s. No, not at all. We're so still that's, yeah. much doing commercial kinds of things. Absolutely. Um, and Tucker was, you know, certainly that. But um, uh, so I, so I got, I saw Tucker in the theaters, um, and uh, I went because I think less about Francis Ford Coppola and more about George Lucas being behind it, right? Because he produced it. Yeah. Uh, he was a producer on the project, and I think in some ways this was really a great synergy for him, right? Because the story of Preston Tucker. You cannot, you, you you cannot watch Tucker and not think about the parallels between Coppola's career and his trajectory and Preston Tucker's career and his trajectory, mm-hmm. right? There's there's mm-hmm. just a lot of similarities between how these two individuals, you know, have gone about their their business, right? Mm-hmm. But for those of you who 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 need something about the plot, it's a biopic, and it's about yes. this man, Preston Tucker, who was. Uh, an American sort of innovator, engineer. He worked for uh, the military uh, pre-World War II, designing, um, you know, uh, prototypes for Jeeps that were like, you know, had these crazy turrets and they were really fast and the army ended up not being able to use them. But, you know, I mean, but the innovation was definitely there. So played by Jeff Bridges. Yeah. Played by Jeff Bridges in the movie. And so after the war, uh tucker decides that you know he's 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 on to the to the what the next best thing is for the american people when they were returning from war one of the first things they wanted is a new car right so he decides that he's going to design and build the next generation fleet of car you know the car of tomorrow today right that was the whole that was the whole thing and his tucker torpedo you know that tucker 48 
that's a sleek looking ride, man. It's a very cool design, you know, it was very innovative. The, the engine in the back and it was like a engine constructed from Huey helicopters. And I mean, it had this weird, you know, design in the way it sat in the back. It had the, the turning center light uh, in the headlights frame that, you know, when you turn the steering wheel, the headlight turns and stuff all this luggage rack and the See, I wouldn't I wouldn't tag innovative you. stuff right I know but I wouldn't tag you as a car person like this oh you're, you're gushing over this like a like a like I, a car enthusiast I do love cars oh. um I love a lot about cars right I'm not one of those car porn people where I gotta like go to the car shows and I gotta you know watch the Fast and the Furious 25 yeah I, I don't need that right but especially these cars from 30s 40s 50s like when the when the you know when the industry was really kind of developing fascinating stuff right mm -hmm. um just really cool <laughs> stuff so tucker something i've always appreciated uh in addition to the you know the innovation in the car industry you know i like this idea of the american sort of entrepreneur the innovator the person who's going to take on the system and change the world right uh, and so, you know, for those of you who don't know what happens in this story, right? I mean, he, he, he designs this fleet of cars. He has all kinds of business issues. He's really trying to like mass produce them and compete with the big three. And the big three kind of lean on him. They mm -hmm. lean on the government and said, look, we got to we got to take this Tucker guy out because he's going to like, you know, eat into our business. And, and our the big three here is what GM, Ford and Ford, GM. And uh, let me check my notes real quick. Uh, right. No, not Chrysler. Chrysler. Ford, is GM, it Chrysler? Chrysler. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so they're really they're you know, they're leaning on these government SEC investigations. Right. And so they get him for mail fraud. Right. Because. Mm -hmm. Well, he was not found guilty, but they took him to trial, right, over mail fraud mm -hmm. because he was so innovative that he was selling people cars by the mail, right? He was like, get your car now and send in your money <laughs> mm -hmm. early, right? He was taking pre-orders, right, via yeah. the mail. And so they were really trying to, you know, snag him on mail fraud. Uh, he, he got out of that. He was never convicted, but it was enough to kill him in the press and in the American public to where he just... He never was able to finish, you know, I mean, he made 50 cars and that was it, right? Uh, mm -hmm. He never was able to find success after that. So it's really a story of like American innovation that got squashed mm -hmm. at a time in our country when we were supposed to be celebrating, you know, the yes. American spirit of entrepreneurship and innovation and, and you know, all, all this kind of stuff. And in the end, it was, you know, it's corporate greed that kind of well, in that squashed it all, you know? I mean, and that's that's a larger again, you know, window into the the you know, uh, post war uh, military industrial complex. I mean, oh, that that, that yeah, you know, that was playing into it, you know, as well. I mean, they they were major players in that because they you know they were, well, they had their hands in all the pies anyway. That's right. That's right. And where do, you, where, do you, where do where do people think Boeing comes from? Or you <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like it's like we're leading up to uh eisenhower's you know big farewell address you know where he's like telling the nation you know like beware of the military industrial complex i mean it's it's coming right um and and tucker is kind of collateral damage i think you know in, in this kind of stuff um so uh so i mean yeah it's a david versus goliath story uh i think criticisms of the movie are fair in the sense that you know uh it's it really does a fantastic job of like capturing uh you know, a, a great performance from Jeff Bridges, Joan Allen's in this, Martin Landau, very young mm -hmm. Christian Slater. It's got a fun little cast. It's a good script. It moves. I think some of the criticism that's fair is that we don't spend enough time for a biopic. We don't spend mm -hmm. enough time really digging away at who Preston Tucker really kind of was. Um, and uh, I think that's probably one of the largest criticisms of the movie that's that's fair the movie is beautifully shot um it's got a great music score and some great performances but i think as in terms of biopics for its genre it it does kind of skirt around some of these uh you know choices where you could have maybe had some more quiet time with preston tucker and you could have sort of explored a little more of his psyche and his kind of i mean they, you know they picture him as this great family guy you know which which i think he larger part was i mean i think it's a truthful representation i just don't know if it's a thorough enough investigation you know what i mean so 
Uh, but yeah, so, I, I, I love the movie. Um, and I just, I kept thinking this time, Jeff, after seeing it, I kept thinking, oh my God, you know, but like Elon Musk mm-hmm. just does whatever he wants in 2022. But in 1948, you know, Tucker's having to battle, you know, all this, yeah. uh, all this resentment, you know, and yeah. all this, uh, all this well, hate from the, from the big business. Well, you know, to it's the way big money and power and capitalism, and especially in American politics and American, you know, foreign policy and affairs. If if movies have taught us anything, it's just like we've always tried to be the stick. You know, what's what's driving them driving Tucker down is one they don't want to make room for, you know, somebody else, and he won't sell, right? You know, but they're already looking at the foreign markets you know, by that, by the post-war era, they're just like, we can put a GM or something in every, you know, uh, uh, French citizens thing. I mean, those plans were always in, in motion. Well, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because in the big climactic courtroom scene, right, where he's defending himself, he even says a line about if we keep squashing American small business innovation, pretty soon we're going to be putting our enemies' designs in our cars and there's laughter, right? There's laughter, right? In the room, like, oh, ho, 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 that's never going to happen, right? <laughs> that was his, that was his, uh, his Capra moment. Pretty much, right? Uh, um, you know, that's, that's even a fair way of, of trying to sort of umbrella this movie, Jeff. It's like Coppola's attempt to try to be either Frank Capra or Preston Sturgis, right? Like to try mm-hmm. to like sort of create that that vibe um uh, with the film you know it's mr smith goes to the car industry right right I mean, that's, yeah. that's kind of the it's kind of the, the model um i bought it right I, I i love this movie uh and i still stand by it and i think i think it's it's not, it's less about coppola and more about tucker himself as well as i just think jeff bridge is a damn good actor and i just i just love oh, i mean his- he, i mean again he's he's another one of the he's been around us our whole lives and you know i mean for for most most people i know it's just like it, he was he was happening way before being the dude i mean although it's tough to be the dude i yeah. mean but now he's just the old man right uh, right now he's the old on that man. fx show I just, i'm like no he can't be so bad but he i i get it he is but, oh, yeah. uh, but but he's just given us such an amazing body of work body of work yeah uh and um you know every everything from the 80s that he was pumping out you know it was just great because i was you were talking about the podcast list you know for the students and i mm-hmm. You know, Starman is still on there. You Starman know? is still on there. That, that movie is just incredible. He's great in that movie. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm a big fan of Tucker. I think you should check it out, even if you're not a car person. I think you can you can certainly appreciate the sort of genre structure and what you know what's going on in the film, even if it doesn't go as deeply as you might want into the biopic kind of components of of Tucker's mm-hmm. life. It's it's worth it in my opinion. So let me ask you this then, then why doesn't, why isn't the film popular? Why doesn't the film take off? Why, why doesn't the film capture something in, you know, the, the movie going public's imagination for, you know, the late eighties? Well, I think in the late eighties, Jeff, we were experiencing a kind of, maximizing point with uh capitalist structure right i mean we were kind of coming to the end of reaganism uh entering into bush 41 yes. um where there were some economic changes going on like where there's that sort of hybrid period between the end of kind of reaganomics before the dot-com boom of the 90s right mm-hmm. where where the sort of structure kind of changed um uh, and so I, I don't know. I think at that point, the the idea of the American kind of entrepreneur spirit, uh, which is so celebrated by, you know, so many uh, in the Republican Party and conservatives uh, celebrate that as a sort of a bastion of, of our of our society. You know, that's one of the great things. You can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can you know, innovate yourself and, and build a business, whatever. Um, yeah. I think there was some cynicism brewing by that point in our, mm-hmm. in our culture. Well, it's, it, it's contextually also, it's just like, it's, it's only a few years after the crash of the stock market. So, I mean, yes. you know, people forget 
th- that you know i always i, I always like having the fun. height of the cocaine crisis as well the height of the you know? Yeah. i you know i mean i like to remind people just like you know when we're having fun you know drinking and just trading trivia around i'm just like remember the stock market crash and they'll go oh yeah and i'm just like oh yeah <laughs> ruined was it 87 you know? or 88 when it was like right around that time 87 yeah yeah, yeah. black monday yeah. You know, that's a- right. A- it's Black Monday. Yeah, that's right. Um, in in eighty seven, yeah. uh, that's you know, and and you you had a series of films from Wall Street. Yep. Um, you know, uh, James Woods had a good film called The Boost in in eighty seven or eighty eight. I don't know they, that one. They were dealing with kind of this idea of you know, and even movies like Less Than Zero, you know, that were dealing mm-hmm. with sort of what are the downfalls and. And sort of what's the fallout from uh, excessive capitalist, right? The thought, um, you know, and sort of looking at what's the collateral damage of all that. And so I think when you had a film like this that came out, which was really kind of trying to celebrate it in a certain way, if not ironically point out where we had hit, you know, ourselves and the culture. Um, I don't know. It's also probably, it was hard to sell, I think, a biopic in that summer blockbuster market i was just Um, about to say i think that they released this like in august yeah it came out like at the end of the summer season um you know and and i you know i don't remember what it what all it was up against but i know that um it got some oscar nominations and it was you know it got some critical praise but uh but it wasn't like a huge hit and i don't know if people would even list it on a couple of best five most people probably wouldn't even the ones who you know worship him um, probably wouldn't list it as one of their their top five. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it's definitely on mine of, mm. of Coppola's work. I'd put it in a top five for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I enjoyed it. It spoke to me. I don't I don't know if that's just because of where I was at at that point in my life. Um, but it uh, but yeah, it, it 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 spoke to me. And it still sticks with me. Well, I mean, that's you know, if you're using if you're using the again the 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 Capra esque you know vein is just like these are movies that are built with a with the layer of cynicism, but yet there is a endearing quality and a almost sappiness to them yes. that is well timeless. Honestly, I mean, that's yeah. what gives them legs. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm true. not surprised that you would categorize it. Well, and it's and, and and you say sappiness, and I think some people read that as something negative, and I it's not sappy is not always negative, right? I mean, no, 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 no. That's not. Uh, I just I just meant when I say sappy, I mean you know what we would say is sort of you know, uh, audgy, corny, you, you know, just there sure. like a like a, and I'm not being derogatory here. I'm just trying to classify it for listeners so that when they when they try to wrap their head around something, when you know, it's just like. To me, it's got an optimism about those types of films have an optimism about it that would be here we go. Instead of saying corny and I like that word better. I like that optimism. I like that's better. Yeah. Well, an optimism that would be viewed as antiquated. How about that? Like, you know, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, that one stings because it's true. Uh, (laughs) Or uh, I can use corny. We we can go either way. (laughs) Corny. We go what uh, what's the right word uh no i think we're hitting at it um and and you know i have the same reaction when i see some of capra's early work you know it's mm-hmm. like gosh in the 1930s this would have like made me want to go march in the streets for some kind of populist cause right but like sure. i watch it in 2022 and i'm like this is the cheesiest corniest thing i've ever seen in my life i'm looking who at who wrote you. this script I'm, I'm, I'm looking at you it's a wonderful life um <laughs> Because I hate that movie, and I know yes. that uh, that puts me in a minority, but that's just kind of where. Oh, no, I'm we're at. in the same boat. I'm just like, how is this a celebratory movie? <laughs> I'm I'm curious. You go back. People need to go back and really reconsider the ending of that movie and what really happens to everybody after the ending of oh, that yeah. movie. And you go, this depressing as hell. Like that. This it's, is it's nothing long, has changed. Nothing has changed. <laughs> it's the long dark tea time for the soul, my man. Like it's just, it's awful. But every Christmas, I swear to God, that thing's on like nonstop. That and a Christmas story. Kids gather around. Oh, I'll tell you the story of a man. That was uh, we're lonely PhDs. Uh, I'm Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. He's Dr. Joseph Watson. We just got done talking about uh, Tucker, a man in his dream, uh, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, 1988. 
Uh, I will now segue into uh, noir territory. You know, just got to dip my foot back in there. Got to keep fresh with it, with one of my one of my hobbies, one of my loves. Uh, in this case, uh, I'm going to be talking about the original uh, uh, version of Nightmare Alley uh, from 1947, directed by Edmund Golding. Uh, basically, Nightmare Alley shows the rise and fall of uh, the main character, Stanton Carlisle, uh, played by Tyrone Power, um, and uh, who is a mentalist. Actually, he starts life. He's he's kind of a carny in a in a you know a, 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 a what do you call him uh, shifty uh, something like that. Yeah. Yep. Uh, it, but he becomes a mentalist in quotes, whose lies and deceit prove to be. Uh, his own downfall, uh, along with a uh, little help from the tarot deck, uh, as as it were. So um, I want to mention, because I think it's important, uh, this was not a typical noir because it had actual money behind it and a score and 20th Century Fox putting Tyrone Power. Well, actually, Tyrone big Power star. was he the was one a big who, star. Yeah. Who, who used his weight because uh, he wanted to make this he actually i was uh surprised i did not know this uh he made the razor's edge before this yes he did so you know that's a that's another one was just like sorry bill murray that that original's really good um <laughs> about again a man looking for his place you know um in the world but uh, this was actually more of an a-list picture than a b-list picture uh although it was relegated to b uh to b-roll status uh, against probably much of 20th Century Fox's uh, uh, trying. Uh, it was shot beautifully by Lee Garms, uh, who was the cinematographer in Lee Garms. Uh, I'm not going to go into all of it, but uh, he was the cinematographer for Howard Hawks, Max Ophels, Joseph von Sternberg, Alfred Hitchcock, King Vidor, uh, uh, Nicholas Ray. Uh, he also, uh, I know this will get Joey right in the feels, uh, he was the uh, cinematographer on Scarface. Yeah. So the original Scarface, yes. Uh, not De Palma's, but uh, uh, so, I mean, this is this thing's got the sheen on it, man. You know, mm -hmm. and and this was a movie that was out of print for a long time. Like you could not find this film. It just went away. Like we don't know why Fox owned it. It's like not, it's not like it ever fell out of, you know, uh, Fox's domain or ownership. I mean, this movie basically just like many noir films, which is always the fun of noir film to me, is just like tracking these things down and finding them and then just going, my goodness, what a film, you know. Um, I, I guess because you had such a charismatic leading man in Tyrone Power who was known for very fun, heroic people. And here he's playing basically like, you know, a piece of garbage. Like he he's an opportunistic piece of piece of garbage who wants to, you know, uh, uh, climb the ladder of success but that's what i really like about this film too because again for the if we're talking about tying it into tucker and tying it into these ideas right it's about opportunity and climbing up you mentioned the bootstraps thing earlier it's just like that's essentially what we have here in this situation you know we have our our, our main uh, uh character uh, uh stanton stan carlisle trying to make his way in the post you know, war America. And he's working in the, in the carnival, not as an actual performer, but kind of like a, he'll run off and like change shirts and act as an MC somewhere. And then he'll go put on a police outfit and act as, and then he'll be selling beverages. You know, he's basically like an assistant to everybody. And, and it turns out that he, he, uh, he's having an affair with uh, Mademoiselle Zina uh, and uh, played by the wonderful Joan Blondell. And, uh, she is basically a uh, pretends to be a medium uh, and her husband is a is a horrible, awful drunk named Pete. Uh, but, you know, Pete's not mean or angry. He's just one of those sad drunks, man. Just, you know, he just he just can't put the sauce down like it, it's just bad. But their their gag is that she gets on the stage with the crystal ball and uh, Stan goes out into the audience and, you know, uh, takes questions down from the audience and then brings them back and they burn them in a big bowl. And then she sits down and looks at the ball. Well, the gag is the the table's cut out and the husband's down there at the bottom and Stan hands him the actual questions that he didn't burn. And he just writes them on a chalkboard and like puts them up where she can see them. And she'll go, 
There's someone in the audience who has a tractor problem. <gasps> you know, and and they the the great thing about the carnies in this film is like there's a code. And and what's kind of very endearing about them is like they actually take care of each other. They really care about each other. Like they do call, you know, the, the paying customers, you know, the rubes, but they also go, it's entertainment. Like they don't, they don't feel like they cheat anybody. They feel like they give them a good time and it's entertainment. And this is a very small group of people and they travel with each other and live with each other. And there's even one great moment where, uh, uh, Zena can afford a hotel room with, a shower and a bath and basically like lets everybody come in and shower and bathe. I mean, that kind of weird communal, uh, uh, you know, we're all in it together, you know, type of thing. And, and I found that very endearing on this watch of it. Uh, this is the third time I've seen the film and, you know, I, I, I really enjoyed, I hadn't really thought about that. I'm not going to use socialist uh, aspect of it i'm just going to go as caring individuals you know empathetic individuals to who want to help each other um and that's why you know our main character really doesn't fit because he obviously doesn't you know this isn't his bag he's on his way to the top baby and he just you know he'll take anything he can get so he's having an affair with xena and he finds out uh from uh, another performer who's a young girl named molly that Zena and Pete once had a really top-notch act, like a real, you know, pack in theaters type of mentalist act. And they had what they called the system. And in the system, as we come to find out, they had developed a way through just talking and using words and syllables and inflections that they could figure, you know, fool the audience and figure out, you know, what's in my hand or because Pete would be blindfolded and she would go out in the audience and say what do you think you know mrs robinson's question is you know and he's blindfolded and standing away and he would repeat back you know verbatim and that would be the only thing she said to her so they worked out some kind of weird system and that's never fleshed out in the movie but from my understanding it's fleshed out in the novel uh, that it's based on uh, that the the that this is an adaptation of a book by a fellow named william lindsay gresham uh who spent time uh with uh, magicians and carnival workers and in this book he he basically gives up the tricks you know which is a big no-no by the way in, in those circles and uh he died uh he took his own life uh early on so you can think what you want about that mm. you know magicians and then they got that weird code man they don't you know you don't give up the gags but anyway so you know turns out that uh, stan stan he gets up there and, and he he convinces Zena to give him the code and they get the code and, and then Pete dies and it gets a little more complicated and in in him and Molly get together and they go on and and you know all this and as Stan continues to become more famous with Molly in this thing uh, you know the real rich people come knocking because they really believe he's a medium like he can you know be in touch with people and that kind of sets up his downfall uh in the end along with he gets <laughs> he gets together with this really griftering scary grifterish psychologist uh and she is just frightening because she is tape recording her people's sessions uh i mean if you ever talked about like a a breach right of of these things you know it's just it's it's just horrifying but um the heartbreak of Nightmare Alley is that everything in it is foreshadowed. Stan's downfall is exactly what Pete's downfall will be. It's almost the exact same trajectory, right? That he will become an alcoholic, that he will become betrayed, that he will, you know, do all this. And then how does he end up being the one thing at the carnival you don't want to be? And that's the geek, right? And, you know, I know they changed the ending of this film. I was listening to a couple of um, scholars talk on the, on the DVD version I had of it about it. And they said that uh, Fox was absolutely adamant. You know, they were just like to Tyrone power. They're just like, Oh no, it's that you got to give it an optimistic ending of some kind, you know, which also by the way, followed the Hayes code of the time. Also, it was just like, you couldn't have 
you could have people had to pay for what they did, but yet you still couldn't go out on a dark, dark note. So, you know, Stanton obviously gets his comeuppance, but Molly is still there to try to save him in the end. And we get kind of that kind of that feeling. Um, but I don't I don't want to get too blog, uh, you know, bogged down in the plot with with everything here because I want people one, I want them to go see it. Uh, or, you know, however you, you know, rent it or however, but this is, you know, this to me is like the zenith of American noir film. And from here on out, it's the, it's the, like I said earlier, it's the one probably only time that studios actually try to do something with them. Now, Wells tries with lady from shanghai but nobody's buying so he has to go his you know his route and of course it ends up the beautiful mess that it is you know um also later he tries one more time right with uh um touch of evil there we go sorry i i'm having brain fog today that's right with with touch of evil and again that gets taken that doesn't really reach its heightened potential uh that it can so so i came to nightmare alley uh I think it was last year, right? Because uh, Guillermo's remake came out. Yes. And so I, before I saw Guillermo's film, I had never seen the original. Fortunately, HBO Max had done something where they had um, included the original, I think maybe because H- for some reason, TCM stuff is on HBO uh, Max now. I've noticed that. Yeah, I've noticed that. I don't know how that happened, but I guess they purchased the library or at least the streaming rights. And so um, it appeared there. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. And we may have even talked about it at the time. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I watched it and I just remember thinking, first of all, how in the world did this movie get made, right? At the time, because <laughs> sure. yeah, it's dark film and uh it goes it's beautifully a lot of shot. It, I mean, it, it is so it's beautifully shot. Jeff, I love the movie. I mean, the movie yeah. is amazing and it's way better than Guillermo's film. And mm-hmm. um, you know, Guillermo's film is just very different and um i think it you know the it, you could not compete with something like the original because of the timing and the context of which it was mm-hmm. released and the impact that it has had i think successfully over the years so i was taken by the communal aspects um of as well um of of what you were talking about i noticed that and had the same kind of sentiment reaction so i think that's interesting um i was i remember thinking constantly while watching it of trying to remember any of the magicians that i had seen in my Mm -hmm. life and how they of course you know protected their tricks and didn't want to talk about it or you know that but that but that it was always like you were saying, like it was always presented as a form of entertainment. Like it wasn't, nobody pretended to be something that they weren't. It was just all a performance. And so I was really captivated by that. And then I remember thinking, wow, this is really turning sinister by the time he starts going off on his own. And he's like, you were saying that whole act. And it's like, whoa, dude, this is not going to end well for you. And then you're right when he is trapped by the money system, like where mm-hmm. it's like, well, money's no object. So you're going to, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to, I'm going to pay you whatever it takes for you to help me, you know, communicate with this, with dead my dead daughter. Or, right. I mean, it's like, that is like where you, you all of a sudden you, you know, you be careful what you wish for because you know, it, it, it'll happen. And so, um, uh, that's where the the story to me got at its most sort of twisted peak, um, you know, and so it's really kind of a lesson about knowing your place, knowing your limits, uh, you know, um, the ending is still, I think, sh- shocking and a little down, um, uh, surprising in ways. And then I remember thinking, too, that, like, how did Tyrone <laughs> Like, how did he end up in this movie? Because he just, you know, like he was such a big star at the time. And so, you know, I remember reading a lot about that as well, like how instrumental he was in getting it done. Oh, he wanted, this was his studio. Yeah. He he pressured them. Um, And so, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's one of those films that I think will always be asterisk from this period because it just stands out. Like it's just got that 
I don't, I don't know. Is it fair to even call it film noir? Like, I mean, no, I, I think it's completely fair to call it film noir. There, there are okay, a number of, okay. comp- well, it's all in, in composition, not in okay. story, right? Not we, in story. And this is where noir gets a little, you know, we, we get into the bit of the waters with it, but right. I'm going to say as far as compositionally speaking, the use of light and shadow, uh, you know, uh, dark over light all the time. Yeah. Uh, this is, firmly firmly in noir and that also again comes from our cinematographer you know in this case and right. him him having extensive background in it and going okay yeah we can light it this way well and we usually think of film noirs as well as being sort of set uh in a seedier part of you know an environment yes. right um a, a maybe not necessarily uh you know a criminal place but you but you're definitely going to it's not going to be set in a suburban neighborhood, right? I mean, uh, most film noirs are going to be set in, in some sort of different urban context. And so um, I think Nightmare Alley, just from where its context and setting generates from, mm-hmm. puts it in, in, in film noir. Um, and certainly stylistically, I agree with you, like all of those elements are there. Um, it's just it's just the story kind of deviates a little differently from what I would think of as traditional film noir, I guess. So right, but you, also thinking about it along the lines of again, like I said, uh, along the lines of the Hayes Code, where you know, it's most noirs are films about you know bad people who get to do some bad things, but then again, it's about comeuppance, right? It's right. about balancing the scales, right. and you know that's that's always in play. That's that's yeah, I you know I hate to always use that as a noir measuring stick, but unfortunately the studios did like that was how they evaluated yeah. those scripts, yeah. you know, and they just went you know that's the difference between an A picture and a B picture, right? I mean I mean you know it's a, we make wrestling pictures here at Capitol, like you know I mean it's just like you know it's a Wallace Berry picture. What do you want? Uh, you know it's just go make a wrestling film, right? Uh, so I yeah I mean I I just think you know at the time too, I mean it must have been just. I mean, this this was released in '47, so you know, right. like Preston Tucker went to see this movie, right? Uh, yeah. in, in real life, right? I mean, I'm speculating, but I mean, he could have, right, had sure. the opportunity to see it, and so it's like you think about sort of that optimism and take on American innovation versus the way this film handles it uh, within its own time era frame. It's a really interesting sort of counterintuitive uh projection of what happens to the the uh the innovator or the entrepreneur or the man who wants to well i mean even even if we go his bootstraps up right i mean even if we go back as far as you know i was on a chain gang you know i mean we've got a lot of these same themes running through these through these films yes and i mean i think and not not that i'm saying that nightmare alley is this um or tucker for that for that matter but like the social problem film, correct, which is something that Chain Gang kind of like implemented into the American sort of cinematic landscape, um, you know, where you were going to sort of tackle a kind of public social issue in a um, arguably controversial, more well-rounded kind of representation of what the dynamics are of that particular problem and situation. Chain Gang. I'm a fugitive from a Chang gang for those of you. It's a film from 1932. Uh, but it it really kind of opened up the door for these stories that kind of addressed stories that weren't necessarily part of the mainstream zeitgeist, right? They were darker stories. They were criminal stories sometimes. They were, you know, um, uh, movies that addressed things that you could not ignore in our society, despite the fact that mass media might be trying to ignore it or not pay attention to it um, or to kind of dismiss it as, as not the norm. Right. Um, And so um, yeah, noirish pulp fiction novels as well. I mean, all of that stuff is in literature too at the time. Right. But just kind of like trying to address uh, those kinds of stories, right. That were not, not afraid to go to places where other people were were perhaps not going right or or not trying to tell uh, those kinds of stories because they were fears of political ramifications, right? I mean, well, we're we're in the we're in the we're almost at the red scare, 
So, you yeah. know, I mean, yeah. even though the yeah. Red Scare was really around longer than, you know, uh, than is actually documented. I mean, it was, you know, the, the, the witch hunts were going on way, way before then. But right. Right. You know, I mean, that, that that goes back to early, early socialistic parties and, you know, in America and, yeah. you know, in, in all that. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, yeah I, I, I don't know. So I don't, I don't know if it's fair to say Nightmare Alley is a social problem film, but it's, but it's definitely, I think it's fair to say that it's film noir and by default film noir has addressed some of those social, social problems. problems correct. Yes. Um, and so, you know, uh, it's, it's difficult to kind of track the evolution of the social problem film once you get into say more of the 50s 60s 70s i mean you can identify things but there were a lot of films at that point you know that were addressing it so it wasn't necessarily like a unique genre at that point um Mm -hmm. although there are lots of people that like to point to you know these are the 10 best social problem films of the decade you know we're such Mm -hmm. a list fanatically list making culture uh you know um uh but but so you can track those kinds of movies that had that kind of impact um upon release um but i think to say that it's its own distinct genre is kind of foolish because you had social problem films Mm -hmm. within all the genres right it wasn't like its own genre you had horror films that were dealing with it you had film noirs you had dramas you had comedies you know that were addressing the mm-hmm. social problem so it became more of a subtextual element than it did kind of its own uniquely identifiable genre if that makes sense yes absolutely well if you want to rant with us or or, or join in the rant or give us a anti-rant i don't know is that a thing uh you can email us lonelyphds at gmail.com uh, or you can, it's quicker, I think, uh, if you go over to the Discord and that link is in our show notes, you just click on that, go over there, say hey-ho, uh, and, and, and you're right there. That's where we do forum discussions and post things about shows to come, shows that we've done, things that make us cackle in our sleep. Uh, we love doing that uh, over there as well. And uh, until next time, I'm Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. I'm Dr. Joseph Watson. We'll see you.